Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, the writer says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Hebrews chapter 12 begins by describing the Christian life like a race, like a contest. We run the race that God has marked out for us. Jesus is our role model in verses 1 through 4. Now the writer speaks of divine discipline, chastening, correction that all children of God experience. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us. In the ancient world, fathers were expected to discipline their children. And so it shouldn't come as a shock or a surprise to the Christian, to the Christ follower, that our Heavenly Father would discipline us. Now the writer will remind us of God's love in verse 5, the reasons for discipline in verse 6, reactions to that discipline in verse 7, rewards for submitting to the divine discipline in verse 11, and then the renewal that can take place in our life and in our heart when we submit in verses 12 through 13. And so it begins with a reminder about discipline in verse 5. Look what it says. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, my son. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Many of you are going to be familiar, but perhaps a few may not, that the writer is quoting Proverbs. Some of you are familiar with the book of Proverbs. It's 31 chapters from a number of different sources that speak of wisdom. And so the writer quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Some of you know it. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest or be discouraged by his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. 
just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Solomon wrote those words. And you'll remember his very famous father was David. Solomon didn't have a very good track record of providing guidance, instruction, and discipline to his children. But late in life, with Solomon sort of being his love child from very, very late in his life, I'm going to suggest to you that he offered guidance, instruction, and discipline. And Solomon was that son in whom David delighted. Now the words translated throughout the passage, chastening, chastened, chastisement in verse 8. It's going to appear in a noun form. It's going to also appear in a verb form. In the noun form and the verb form, it comes from a root word. And the root word in the Greek language is pais. The word is a word that's linked to the word child or children in the plural. The verb paideo, the noun paideia. These words are all words that are used in the ancient language to refer to child training, child discipline. And many of the Hebrew Christians were immature. They were spiritual babes. Paul will even talk to some of the people that he writes to in the book of Corinthians. And he says, I wish that I could speak to you like you are mature, but some of you are acting very immature. And so I'm going to have to speak to you like spiritual children. And you'll remember that the Hebrew Christians in some sense were immature because they didn't understand that God was allowing suffering and he was allowing trial and he was allowing tests. And remember, when you are very, very young, when you have a trial or a test or a difficulty, children don't always understand about the trial, the test and the difficulty. And as you grow older, you begin to understand how trials and tests and difficulties are meant to grow you up. And so in verse 9, we have human fathers, the writer says, who corrected or disciplined us. It's the word paduatas. The one who disciplines, but again, it's another one of those root words that is also linked together with these other words, the implication being children who are being disciplined and someone who is doing the disciplining. Now, the, the reminder comes in the context of verse 4. Remember what we've already read in verses 1 through 4. In verse 4, remember the writer says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Striving against sin. Now remember what we've already learned. Some of you might be thinking, well, just how hard should I struggle against trial and temptation and testing? Duh, and we learned, uh, for those of you who were here on Sunday, we were talking about Matthew and the, the storm and the trial in the storm. And does God expect faith in the trial and in the storm? And the answer is yes. So remember the context. The context is the persecution of these Hebrew Christians 
Trial, yes. Pain, yes. Suffering, yes. Martyrdom, no. They've not yet struggled resisting sin to blood. The, the implication being we have yet to suffer as Christ has suffered. And so he brings up this subject of discipline. And for some of us, this is going to be very uncomfortable. And the reason why it's going to be uncomfortable is because most of our ideas and concepts about discipline don't come from the scriptures. They come from our experiences, our life experiences. And some of you might read chastening of the Lord and immediately your thought and your mind and your memory goes back to an abusive situation. You might think, I'm too old to be spanked by God. That ship has sailed. But we need to be careful. Because the Bible teaches that God has placed us under divine authority. We know that we live in a broken world. We know that because we live in a broken world, sometimes people exercise authority in a less than biblical way. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But what I want to bring to your attention is, again, the point that the writer is trying to make. Donald Blush writes, quote, If anything characterizes modern Protestantism, it's the absence of spiritual disciplines or spiritual exercises. Yet such disciplines form the core of the life of, the, of devotion. It's not an exaggeration to state that this is the lost dimension in modern Protestantism. It was his way of speaking about spiritual disciplines that awaken in our heart a greater love for and devotion to the Lord. But remember what discipline means. Discipline is correction that is supposed to result in wholeness and wellness. The goal of discipline is correction and restoration. If you hear the word discipline and you think of the word punishment, you're not getting it. Do you understand the difference between discipline and punishment? Discipline is what you do in order to effect a change in behavior. Punishment is the consequences for bad behavior. And you see, if you think in your mind, God is punishing me for my bad behavior, you might be right. In this sense, does the Bible say what a person sows that also they will reap? Does the Bible say if you reap the wind, you might, or if you sow the wind, you might reap the whirlwind? Is it possible that if you are committed to a life of rebellion and disobedience and law-breaking and more rebellion and more disobedience and law-breaking, that it might catch up with you? Sometimes there's punishment. But the purpose of discipline is not to render judgment or condemnation. The purpose of discipline is to put us on the right track, to get us back on the right course. So think of discipline as course correction. I've gotten off track in my thinking. I've gotten off track in my speaking. I've gotten off track in my living. 
So what might happen? We might be tempted to despise the Lord's discipline or become discouraged in the discipline. Andrew Murray wrote, quote, God has no pleasure in afflicting us, but he will not keep back even the most painful chastisement if he can but thereby guide his beloved child to come home and abide in the beloved son. Remember in Romans chapter 8 where Paul writes, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his son. You wake up in the morning and you have a goal in mind, something that you want to accomplish. You want to do something or accomplish something or change something. But when you wake up in the morning, God might have a different goal for you. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible tells us what that goal is. Every moment of every day, God looks at you and he says, I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to make you like Jesus. Here's God's goal for your life. To whom he did foreknow, he also did predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. He's in the process of making you like Jesus, conforming you both in your character and your conduct towards Jesus. God has all the resources of the universe available to him. There is nothing hidden from him, and there are no resources that aren't available to him. And so that's what God's doing with you. Whether you're aware of it or not. Whether you're conscious of it or not. And so we see those expressions, do not despise, verse 5, nor be discouraged, verse 6. You see the expression, but painful, in verse 11. In verse 15, you see, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. If you despise instruction, guidance, correction, if you're discouraged by instruction, guidance, correction, if it's painful in verse 11 and you become bitter in that discipline, then you resist God and you resist his plan and you resist his purposes. You know, the Bible teaches that sometimes we can have a wounded spirit. When the Bible speaks of a wounded spirit, what it, what it really means is hurt feelings. If anyone has ever said to you, you hurt my feelings, or you've said that to somebody else, I think my feelings have been hurt. That's what it's talking about. Proverbs 18, 14, a wounded spirit who can bear. We feel hurt. We feel offended. That hurt might be real. The hurt might be imagined, but sometimes it's followed by bitterness. And when you think that it's God who has hurt you, and when you think that it is God who has offended you, then you can begin to live a life of estrangement from God, distant from God, overwhelmed by anger, stubbornness, rebellion. In Proverbs 18, 14, it says, a wounded spirit who can bear... And the reason why is how do you change your feelings? The Bible speaks in the book of Proverbs of foolishness. 
When the Bible speaks of a fool or foolishness, it doesn't mean someone who's stupid. It doesn't mean someone who's uneducated. It doesn't mean someone who's disconnected from reality. A fool in, a, in the Bible is a person who, for whatever reason, lacks moral fiber. A, a fool in the Bible is a person who is void of judgment. And if your life is filled with foolishness, then the chances are that the presence of foolishness in the life of a believer is also evidence of spiritual immaturity and spiritual immaturity becomes an invitation to discipline, guidance, instruction. That's the point. Is that your life? Is your life sometimes characterized by foolishness? In his book, The Heart of Anger, Lou Priolo provides a list I love this list. He entitles in his book, 25 Characteristics of a Fool. It's on page 23. And like I said, a fool isn't a stupid person, but a person who lacks moral clarity and judgment. And the characteristics of a fool are the characteristics of a rebel, he says. A fool hates wisdom and instruction in Proverbs 1.7. That means you might have a problem if you hate wisdom and you hate instruction. According to the book of Proverbs, a fool hates knowledge, Proverbs 1.22. A fool grieves his or her mother, Proverbs 10.1. In the book of Proverbs, we find the list. And I don't have time to go through the whole list, but I do want to give you some of them. Look at these characteristics as it's outlined in the book of Proverbs. Enjoys devising mischief, Proverbs 10.23. Now, again, here, we're not talking about childish pranks. We're not talking about pranking your friends. I think that the mischief that it's talking about is the kind of mischief that dishonors God and hurts people in a profound way. The fool is right in his own eyes, Proverbs 12, 15. The fool is quick to anger, Proverbs 12, 16. The fool hates to depart from evil, Proverbs 13, 19. The fool is deceitful in Proverbs 14, 8. Arrogant and careless in Proverbs 14, 16. Doesn't respond well to discipline, Proverbs 17, 10. And so if you wake up in the morning and you begin to live your life, throughout the day and the day turns into a week and the week turns into a month and you're always getting into trouble you you always think that what you're doing is okay you are given to explosive bouts of anger you are unwilling to abandon the course of action you find yourself living lies you become arrogant and careless and when discipline comes you resist it and reject it, then that means you're in trouble. There are many more characteristics that he lists. Doesn't understand wisdom, Proverbs 17, 6. A worldly or carnal focus, grieving your parents, hurting your parents. The picture, again, of all of these things is a picture of someone not mature, but immature. The fool, the rebel requires discipline. And you see, if you don't think about that for just a moment, in the context of the passage, 
that you're reading, then the chances are you're going to get in trouble. And you see, if you grew up in a world where you thought that you never, ever should be disciplined, then that means that you've grown up in a world of deceit and selfishness. Thank God most of you didn't grow up that way. Thank God most of you had moms and dads who very diligently and very carefully reminded you of what was right and what was wrong and what was good and what was evil. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, don't despise it. That means don't resist it. Don't make light of it or pay little concern for the discipline and the correction of God. It may begin with that tug of conscience. It begins in your heart where something tugs inside of you and, and, and a voice whispers in your ear, don't do that. That's not good. That's, that's not right. That's not good. It's not right. It's not helpful. And that tug might lead to opening up your Bible. And you open up your Bible and you read there in black and white, God speaks, the Holy Spirit speaks, the Lord Jesus speaks about your condition. And then he gives the reasons for discipline in verse 6. Look what it says. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Remember, child instruction, discipline, and scourges every son whom he receives. It's the scourging part that troubles you often. You mean God would spank me? Yeah. And it might be painful? Yeah. Will it kill me? Almost never. When I was a little boy, I was thinking about this. My, my mother died in October, and my wife is putting all of her pictures on, um, on a disc to give to my brothers and sisters. And I saw a picture of me in the fourth grade. And in the fourth grade, I was hopelessly in love with Debbie Jones. She was the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. And I needed to figure out a way to tell her just how much I cared about her. And so I decided that the best way would, would be to, after school, throw dirt clods at her. <laughs> Remember, I'm in the fourth grade. My prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed at this point. And, you know, I'm lobbing the dirt clods. I really am not interested in hitting her, but I am interested in getting her attention. So I'm lobbing this dirt clod, and I lob the dirt clod, and she runs. And it's like a perfect hit, and it hits right on top of her head. And inside of the dirt clod is a rock. And the rock splits her skull. And she starts bleeding. And the little voice inside of me said, run for your life. And another voice said, turn around, go back, help her. Run for your life, help her. Run for your life, help her. Run for your life, help her. And I turned around and I walked back. I told her how sorry I was. I took her back to the school. We went into the principal's office and the nurse's office and they cleaned off her head, 
next day she comes to school, her little head is shaved back where she's got stitches in her skull. And Gino Geraci goes to the principal's office because it's time for scourging. And I bend over. This is at a time when you could get disciplined. You know, those days are long gone. And I got hit like I've never been hit before. And then I got hit again. And then I got hit again. And I deserved it. I deserved it. I deserved it. And by the way, discipline will, again, serve one of two purposes. It will correct and adjust or embitter. But my heart was already tender, repentant, willing not to throw dirt clods at girls anymore. And it's really funny. For some reason, she thought that I was wonderful. And I thought she would never like me after that. And by the way, we're friends to this day. In verse 6, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges whom he receives. What are the reasons? There are many, but here in this verse, we find two. To prove his love. And number two, to prove that we are his children. That little verse is astonishing in the information that it provides. The writer of Hebrews gives powerful encouragement to those who are under trial, who are under pressure, persecution, temptation, doubt, fear. Because when you are experiencing trial and pressure and persecution and temptation and doubt and fear and suffering, you might be thinking, is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong? Is God mad at me? The writer of Hebrews says exactly the opposite. Well, what about the discipline, God's discipline? Well, we have Jesus as our example in verses 1 through 4. We have the assurance of God's love here in verses 5 and 6. We all want God's love, but sometimes we resist God's discipline. And the irony is that God's discipline serves as one of the proofs of God's love. And so when a person says to you that God loves you, and the right response is, how do you know And you remember in Romans chapter 5, it says here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's proof. In other words, one of the proofs of God's love is the fact that Jesus was willing to die on the cross for your sin. Another proof of God's love is that he's willing to discipline you. He's willing to give you guidance and instruction and direction. And God sends Jesus. As proof of his love. And then God allows discipline as proof of his love. Now, I want you to contrast that with what you already know. Satan tells us that God's discipline is proof that God doesn't love us. You might have had a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa or whoever your caregiver was, and they came up with that famous line, you thought they invented it, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you go, right, right, then why don't you bend over and let me spank you? You actually don't realize how true it is until you have your own children. You don't realize how true it is 
until instruction and guidance and correction becomes an important part of someone that you love and that you care about. Satan says God's discipline is proof that God doesn't love you. God's word says that Satan is a liar and Satan is a deceiver and that God's discipline is proof that he loves you. Spurgeon said, quote, when God chastises his children, he does not punish as a judge does, but he chastens as a father. The famous Dutch patriot, Corrie ten Boom, lamented, she said, it hurts, it hurts when God has to pry things out of our hand. I love that. It hurts when God has to pry things out of our hand. It's true. He has to tear it from our grasp. And look what it says in verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. The word illegitimate is powerful and strong. It's brutal, even hurtful in some translations. It's the Greek word, nothoi. It was a word in the old Greek that spoke of a child who was, that their parents weren't married. It also meant not just simply that the father would not acknowledge the child's presence. There were lots of unwed mothers in the past, just like there are unwed mothers in the present. But this was the child who has to grow up with a fa without a father because the father won't acknowledge him, won't support him, and won't discipline him. That's part of the point. And the reason why it becomes such an important point in the passage and in the context in which we're studying is the writer is trying to leave you with the impression of the person who is saying to himself or herself, it's the person who's reading these words and listening to these words and, and thinking to themselves that they've gotten away with sin, that they've gotten away with it. That God doesn't really care about them. He doesn't really care about their sin or their rebellion or their disobedience. God is unconcerned about their wickedness, their immaturity, their rebellion, and their, their disobedience. And so the point that this passage is trying to bring to the reader is that this is one of those times where discipline brings assurance. If you grew up in a home where your mom said to you, wait till your father gets home. I'm not going to deal with you. I'm going to let your father deal with you. It could have produced fear. It could have produced dread. It could have produced panic. Or for some of you, 
relief because your mom was way scarier than your dad. But that wasn't true in my case. In my case, when my mom said that, it was going to be awful. And so he says, he's basically saying, are you being taught by God? Are you being instructed by God? Are you being disciplined by God? Are you being corrected by his Holy Spirit? Because these become powerful reminders that there's a real God in heaven, deeply concerned about your circumstances. And so in verse 9, when it says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Not all of us welcomed our parents' instruction, guidance, correction, discipline. The writer is assuming that most people who experienced discipline from human parents and caregivers didn't interpret that discipline as a sign that their parents hated them. He's basically coming to exactly the opposite instruction, that when you live in a world where there is guidance and care and instruction, and please don't read into the passage abuse, because that's not the point that the, that the passage is making. There are people who have been the recipients of abuse. There are people who the instruction and the correction and the discipline was way off track. We have to realize at some level that they were interested in our safety, not our harm. That's the point that the passage is making. He's, he's making the point of a passage of growing up in a home where you have a loving mother and a loving father who are concerned about your safety. They don't want you to be harmed. And you began to understand that I need to respect my mother and I need to respect my father because the truth is they really are looking out for my best interest. And like I said, I'm willing to concede that not all parents discipline their children with fairness or consistency. And some of us grew up in a home where human fathers or even mothers didn't correct us out of love, out of anger, out of frustration, maybe even rage. Maybe they did it in an overtly legalistic way or maybe some of you actually had exactly the opposite. You were pampered, coddled, and conditioned to get your way. And it ruined you. This is why I thank God that I had three boys and not three girls. If God in his grace and his mercy would have allowed my wife's prayers to come true. Please Lord Jesus, please Lord Jesus, give us a girl, give us a girl. All boys, all boys, all boys. I think that the reason why is if I would have had girls and the girl would come to me and she, dad. I want whatever I want. Sure, honey. This is your dad cutting open his wrist. This is me bleeding. The, my last drop of blood. You know what? My life doesn't matter. My blood doesn't matter. Nothing matters except for your happiness and well-being. 
If you have a father who actually disciplined you and says, no, you can't get your way, no, you know, you live in a world, I know that you think that it's all about you, but it really isn't, then you should thank God. Not all of us welcome God's instruction. Not all of us welcome God's correction or God's discipline. Look carefully at that expression. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And then it says, be in subjection to the father of spirits and live. A superficial reading of that, you might miss the point. What is he saying? The implication is that for those who refuse submission, that you might die. In other words, you had an earthly father who corrected you, and you paid them respect. You have a heavenly father who corrects you. The difference is this. Your human parents may not have had access to all of the right information in order to draw a right conclusion, but God always does. God's spirit will stir us and save us so that we can truly live. Can you imagine a world where a child grows up, no discipline, no guidance, no instruction, And guess what? When you grow up in a world where there's no discipline, no guidance, no instruction, there's no boundaries, and in your little world you think, I'm free to do whatever I want, whatever I think I can realistically get away with. And that's a recipe for incarceration. Because the real world in which we live, if you do certain things and the police officer says, put down the gun and you don't obey, or put your hands behind your back, and you don't obey, it can end really, really badly. You see, there's really no such thing as life, absent discipline, absent guidance, absent instruction. That's not life. Think of everything that's evil. Think of everything that's corrupt, everything that's devastating, ruining. And that's a life, absent discipline. The big question is, do you think that God in heaven allows his children to live in unrepentant rebellion forever? See, it's a misunderstanding. It misunderstands the nature of God, the character of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. Particularly if you think, here's what a loving God would do. A loving God will let me do whatever I want to whomever I want, whenever I want. Is that really the definition of love? Is that the definition of a loving parent? How could it possibly be the definition of a loving God? And does it surprise you? Does it surprise you that a patient God, a kind God, a merciful God... A loving God will deal with his rebellious children in such a profound and permanent way. You know, our parents might joke, say, I brought you into this world and I can sure as, and you can fill in the blank, take you out of it. 
And at a certain age, you go, I believe you. But you see, the difference between our parents and God is that God doesn't say stupid things and irresponsible things and hateful things that are prompted by not having enough information. If God has to kill you to discipline you, then that means you're in big trouble. And I'm going to suggest to you that God will kill his children. But he doesn't just kill them arbitrarily. If that were true, then no offense. I won't speak for you. I guess I'll speak for me. I would be dead. I would already be dead. In an honest moment in your own heart, and you begin to catalog the rebellion and the disobedience in your own life, and you go, okay, well, there was that time that I was rebellious and disobedient and disconnected, rebellious, disobedient, and disconnected, but God in his grace and his mercy, his grace, his mercy, his love, his patience, his kindness, he keeps you alive on the planet. But there may come a point where for reasons that I don't completely understand, and I certainly don't have all of the information, God will allow his children to die if that's the only option. And in verse 10 it says, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Look what it says. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as they seemed best. Again, different parents have different discipline. They may have done what they thought was best with all of the fallen, broken circumstances that they were faced with. But, but it says, he for our profit. Parents discipline their children with several goals in mind. If you're a parent, you have a goal in mind for your children. We've already seen that earthly discipline by parents may not always be consistent with the mind of God or the heart of God. But for the Christian, the Christian, for the person who loves the Lord Jesus and wants to raise their children in a God-fearing home, a God-honoring home, and a God-loving home, they're going to have to make a choice. And they're going to have to make the choice. Is their home going to be a child-centered home? Or a Christ-centered home. And if you teach the child that our home is a child-centered home, they're going to grow up believing that that's true. And so you're going to have to remind them that our home isn't a child-centered home. It's not even a mother and a father-centered home. Our home is a Christ-centered home. We've already seen again that we may get it wrong. We may not always have the right goals. God disciplines us for our good to make us partakers of his holiness. That's what it says in verse 10. But he for our profit that we might be partakers, look what it says, of his holiness. In what sense? That we glow in the dark when we go into strange places? That's not what holiness means here. The holiness that he's talking about is the separateness that is marked by the person who's been changed and transformed by the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. Holiness here means that you have been disciplined because you've been set apart. 
to love him, to walk with him, to serve him, to be his companion. William MacDonald writes, quote, but God's discipline is always perfect. His love is infinite. His wisdom infallible. His chastenings are never the result of whim, but always for our profit. His objective is that we be partakers of his holiness and godliness can never be produced outside of God's school, unquote. The reason why I like that is because holiness isn't going to be produced by selfishness and immaturity. Joet calls this chastening creative, not punitive. And the reason why I even bring it up to you is to be because of what a novel thought that is. The phrase that we may share carries with it the idea of direction. It is that we might share in a life that is directed by purity and beauty. I love that. It's a pure life and a beautiful life. Joet writes, the fire which is kindled is not a bonfire blazing heedlessly and unguardedly and consuming precious things. It's a refiner's fire and the refiner sits by it and he is firmly and patiently and gently bringing holiness out of carelessness and stability out of weakness. Even though the illustration is an old, old illustration, the picture is a person sitting by a fire who's putting stuff into the the fire that that which is impermanent is going to disappear so that which is permanent can be beautiful and remain that's the idea the Lord has a goal in mind the discipline the instruction and the guidance is for holiness Jay Adams has written several helpful books and Jay Adams wrote quote discipline is the secret of godliness you must learn to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You see, godliness doesn't appear just by going to church or even by reading your Bible or even by hanging out with Christian friends or going to Christian movies or listening to Christian music. Having Christian friends, reading your Bible, going to church, all of those things are wonderful things. They're good things. They're great things. And I'm, I want you to come to church and I want you to read your Bible and I want you to hang out with people who are going to encourage you in your walk with Christ. But godliness and holiness can only come when God in his grace and his mercy identifies those areas of our life that require a radical and profound change and then he's willing to work that change. And then he talks about our rewards and submitting to divine discipline. Look what it says in verse 11. Now, no chastening. Remember what the chastening means. It is the discipline that provides direction for whatever reason that when we're characterized by immaturity, now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, and that's the key word in the passage, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, the word discipline, trained, through constant use, trained. 
Sometimes the pressure to submit to God. Sometimes the pressure to repent. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit, by his powerful convicting presence, comes to you. The Holy Spirit speaks to you. And the Holy Spirit presses against your heart and presses against your circumstance and says, I I need you to go in a different direction. I need you to go in a different direction. I need you to go in a different direction. This isn't going to be a part of your life. This isn't going to be a part of your thinking. This isn't going to be a part of your life. it, It becomes overwhelming. Some of you have been kept up at night. You try to go to sleep. And the Holy Spirit keeps you awake. You have some unfinished business. There's something in your life. This has got to, this can't continue. This can't go on. This has got to change. This has got to change. This has got to change. And you go, okay, time out. I need to get some sleep here. And the Lord goes, I, I want you to get to sleep. But in the tenderness of your conscience, I want to be able to speak to you in your life. But that's what it says. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards. This is the transition. Afterwards, It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look what that means. Discipline produces peace. Discipline produces righteousness. Again, maybe you grew up in a world where you understood that once you bend over, once you get that swat, once the tears come, and the promise to repent comes, you get to go on with your life. It produces peace, righteousness. If imperfect parents, if imperfect parents can bring about a mechanism where you're trying to be able to go forward, your perfect heavenly father is trying to produce a mechanism that will provide peace, Produce righteousness. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, offered this testimony. He said, quote, I'm afraid that all the grace I have got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. Now, the British penny is a little bit bigger than the English penny. But it's something small and doesn't hold a whole lot. Spurgeon says, But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the hammer and the anvil, the fire and the file? Affliction is the best furniture in my house, unquote. The reason why he says that is because he understands that the pain... Sorrow, the suffering, the discipline, the instruction, and the guidance is meant, it's meant to bring you to a place of peace and comfort and hope. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. This is an old expression, and it's really hard for us to understand in our culture and society. It's an exhortation. We might translate this, take a new grip. With your tired hands. Stand firm on your shaky legs. My grandchildren love 
to watch a Disney video where they sing, chin up, chin up. You know that expression, chin up, hold your head high. Does the writer of Hebrews say, look, put on a brave face for the benefit of the others. I'm gonna to suggest to you that the passage means that and more. It's, it's more than that. I, I think what it means is lift up those weak hands that hang down. The ones that are dragging, lift them up in praise. Lift them up in service to others. Lift your hands for the task of, of loving and serving. Our knees may be weak. They may lack strength. But God will strengthen our knees through persevering prayer. He says, make straight paths for your feet in verse 13. So that what is lame may be dislocated, but rather be healed. In other words, Mark out a straight path with your feet. Walk straight. Walk the path of Christian discipline and discipleship. When it says make straight the paths so that what is lame may not be dislocated, I think what he's making reference to, the lame, I think, is a reference to the cripple. The idea is what has been made crippled, dislocated because of doubt and discouragement, or pain, we might even go a little bit further because of fear and rebellion. The idea being, if you've dishonored God and you've disobeyed God and you got hurt in the process, things didn't go well, that it's okay. It's okay now. You can come back. You can be whole and well. You can be healed. G.H. Lang gives this marvelous illustration. I'm gonna, and it's rather lengthy, but I want to read it quickly. He says, quote, A weary traveler, tired of the road, and the buffeting of the tempest, that means the tossing of the storm, stands dispirited and limp, with shoulders bowed, with hands hanging slack, with knees bent and shaking. He's ready to give up and sink into the ground. Such can God's pilgrim become as pictured by our writer. But one comes to him confident of men with kindly smile and firm voice and says, cheer up, stand erect, brace your limbs, take heart and grace. You've already come far. Throw not away your former toils. A noble home is at the end of the journey. See, yonder is the finest road to it. Keep straight. Seek the great physician's healing for your lameness. Your forerunner went this same hard road to the palace of God. Others have gone before you and won through. Others are on the way. You're not alone. Press on. You can reach the goal. You can reach the prize, unquote. And I like that. That's what he's saying. Hold your head up. Hold your hands up. Stand straight. Look at the road that's marked heaven. Look at the people who've walked before you. Remember that there are people behind you. Mothers and fathers have lots of lessons to teach their children, don't they? They teach us good, bad, right, and wrong. 
They teach us. They're supposed to instruct us. But if you grew up in a world where your mom and your dad, your immediate family weren't godly, they, they didn't love the Lord, they didn't know the Lord, they had no way of telling you how to walk in humility and maturity and obedience to Christ. It can be hard, especially if you've got children, especially if you've got grandchildren. But God calls you to a different kind of life and a different kind of service and a different kind of example. Lang writes, Happy is he who knows how to sustain with words him that is weary, Isaiah 54. Happy is he who accepts exhortation, Hebrews 13, 22. Happy, thrice happy, is he whose faith is simple and strong so that he finds no occasion of stumbling in the Lord when his discipline is severe. Can you imagine if you model submission and humility and cooperation and you get to impart that to others. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, this is the wrong attitude. God's chastening is meant to help us grow, not to beat us down. He says it in the context of this. Is the path difficult? We know that it is. Is the path painful? Sometimes it is. When the path is painful and when the path is difficult, is it possible that the Christian will say, I'm tempted to give up? And again, the writer's answer is, this is not the time to give up. Wearsby says, the correct attitude is that we endure by faith, verse 7, allowing God to work out his perfect plan. It is the blessed afterward of verse 11 that keeps us going. Chastening is for our profit that we might be sharers of his holiness and our submission brings the most glory to his name. So what have we learned? We're not to take God's discipline lightly. We're not to give up. We endure discipline because it proves God's love. It proves God's leadership. It proves relationship. My favorite, proof of paternity. We're going to have to give God a test. Look, on your, your born-again birth certificate, under father, is it blank? Is it declined to state? What if it's your heavenly father? Your heavenly father. His paternity becomes the basis for our maturity. We can move from immaturity to maturity. And so number one, God disciplines us to assure us that we're his, verse 8. God disciplines us to save us and stir us so that we can truly live in verse 9. God disciplines us for our good and to make us partakers of his holiness in verse 10. God disciplines us so that we can bear the fruit of peace and righteousness in verse 11. And what's our response? Number one, if we feel discouraged or defeated, 
because of trial or suffering, we lift up our hands. We strengthen and straighten our knees. We allow God's discipline instead of life's discouragement to define our life. Think about that for just a moment. Depression, discouragement, or instruction, guidance, discipline. Second, we make straight paths for our feet. What does that mean? We follow the straight course of God's discipline. We do exactly what God's spirit tells us to do. We do what the word of God tells us to do. And we refrain from doing what the spirit tells us not to do. And number three, we submit to God's healing. I think that that's what that means in verse 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, the feeble knees. Make straight paths. What is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. What does that mean? The things that are crooked in our life, the things that are lame, the things that are injured. We strengthen our grip. We build up the muscles in our spiritual bones and bodies and knees. We make straight paths. And why do we do that? I want you to think about this. This is one of the main reasons why health and wholeness and holiness becomes an important part of your life. It's so that you can encourage others who are weak. It's so that you can encourage others whose lives have been dislocated, injured, because of a life of rebellion and disobedience. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, the prophet says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he is torn and he'll heal us. He is smitten and he will bind us up. It's Hosea's way of saying, we got spanked. We've been disciplined. But God's now ready to heal us and to bind us up and smother us in love. We're going to have communion in just a moment. What I want you to do is just hold on to the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to pass out the communion. We have gluten-free elements for those of you who have nutrition issues and you you have a gluten intolerance. We have that as well. But let's just pray for a moment. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father... Lord, you know the truth about our hearts and our lives. You know whether or not we're immature or mature. You know whether or not we're open to guidance, instruction, and discipline or not open to guidance, instruction, and discipline. But Lord, I pray that you would reveal to that man or that woman that there is healing, that there is hope, there is love, that there is restoration that's available to everyone, to everyone, to everyone who will turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. That we don't have to live a life of rebellion and disobedience to God, 
that we can come gladly, joyfully. We can turn from our sin and we can turn to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that that's exactly what we would do. In Jesus' name.